love that line. With every breath that I am able, I will sing. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, mate. I will sing of the goodness of God. Isn't it wonderful to give praise to Jesus? Isn't it wonderful to be together as his family, to raise our voices in thankful adoration and to give him praise? I tell you, why don't we give him a wonderful shout again, a round of applause. Come on, let's honor our King. Let's honor our Lord. Let's just thank him for a moment. We thank you. We praise you. We applaud you, Jesus, with every breath that we are able, we will sing thankful praise to you as we look back and as we see all of your goodness in our lives. We truly, truly do thank you today for one another, for calling us together, for bringing us together as your family, as your body. And we thank you, Lord, for the amazing sacrifice that you made for our lives when you died on the cross, but not only died, when you rose from the dead to give us new life, eternal life in you. We truly, truly do thank you. And like Faye says, said, Lord, we are completely overwhelmed and amazed when we think about your lavish love and goodness that you bestow on us every minute of every day. And all God's people said, Amen. Come on, let's show our appreciation for our musicians as they go down. I tell you what, I, I can tell I'm getting excited this morning. My glasses are steaming up. My goodness me, when your glasses steam, uh, uh, steam up, Steve, we're in trouble, aren't we? Amen. Well, it is good to be together this morning. And today, again, we're going to return to Romans chapter 16 in a moment in this series of messages that we've been looking at, making your life count. And hey, how about last Sunday, Paul and Hillary shared their testimony, amazing reports from that. Aren't we blessed to have people like Paul and Hillary, many people like Paul and Hillary, who are great examples to the grace of God. And do you know what I love about Paul and Hillary and many others in this family? Just like Jesus, you know, that first appearing after he rose from the dead, he didn't run around Jerusalem, you know, shouting out, I beat you all, right? No, he went privately to meet his disciples, the greatest event in the universe, the greatest event in history by far, eclipsing all other events. Jesus rises from the dead, and do you know what he did? He went to the ones that he loved, the disciples, and he, he met them in a room, hidden away, the doors were locked, and he just passed through those locked doors in his, in his resurrected body, and do you know what he did? He said, peace be unto you. And then he did something very special. He showed them his wounds. 
That's what he did. He showed them his wounds. And, and people, believers that are willing to show you their wounds are very special. Paul and Hillary, you know, as you well know, are willing to show the scars of life and how the grace of God has healed those scars. It's wonderful to use all of those old incidents of life and to use them as a testimony for God's grace, isn't it? So I'm sure you were blessed by them last week. That's just what Jesus does. As he showed his disciples his wounds, so we show one another our wounds and rejoice in the fact, right? Rejoice in the fact that Jesus has healed us and his grace has come as a wonderful healing balm on those wounds. And now they are a message of his grace and his love and a testimony of his life in us. Amen. So thank you for that, Paul and Hillary. Bless you. We are a blessed church to have such people uh, in our midst. So, yep, again, today we're returning to Romans chapter 16 in this series of messages, Making Your Life Count. And from this closing chapter at the end of Romans, we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul loved and valued people. Paul wasn't just an incredibly gifted individual who could undertake huge church planting projects as he stormed through the Roman Empire, Paul was a man that loved people. If you had Paul as a friend, you had a friend for life. Irrespective of the seasons you were going through, irrespective of the ups and the downs that come in life, if Paul was your friend... You had, a li- you, you had a lifelong friend in this man. This is what you see from examining, examining his life. Paul was a person who formed deep bonds with the people that he met. When he wrote to the church at Philippi, for instance, he said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 7, you people are inscribed in my heart. He just loved the body of Christ. He just loved the church. He just loved people because he saw them not as a project, but as purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And in the same depth of love and friendship, As he wrote that Philippian letter, he writes Romans chapter 16 to people that mattered much to him. Paul was a great friend maker, a great lover of people. And we see this as we read this chapter and other chapters like it in the New Testament. Now, over the last several weeks, we've looked at the uniqueness of individuals that Paul marked out as exemplary in Romans chapter 16. Here, he's commending over 30 people in this chapter. When you include households, the households that he mentions, men and women who had made their lives count 
for Christ. They had made a decision. The men and women in Romans chapter 16 that are mentioned by Paul, they had made a decision to lay their lives down for the cause of Christ. And today we're going to see some more of those individuals who were equally as unique as the others mentioned. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 16, verse 8 through to verse 11. These are the verses that we're going to be concentrating on today. And Paul again here is commending people who are close to his heart. Verse 8 through to verse 11 says this, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. So here, in these few verses, we have another completely different group of names that Paul is commending. And all of these people here mentioned are people of note to Paul, people who have laid down their lives for the cause of Christ. And Paul wants all the believers at Rome to hold these individuals as dear in their heart. Because they had given their lives in the spreading of the gospel and in the building of the church. Listen, there is no greater work to give your life to than to build the church of Jesus Christ in your day and in your generation. There is no greater work to commit your life to than to building the church of Jesus Christ. There is one commitment that Jesus has outlined as vital to him, and that is in the building of his church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There can be no greater work of service. There can be no greater task that, that we can give our lives to than to the building of the church. And this, this is what these individuals did. They gave their lives to the building of the church in their time and in their generation and spread the gospel wherever they could, wherever they went. Now, in the three verses that we've just read, there are three very important areas that Paul is covering indirectly in the commendations that he's given. Three areas that I picked up on and noticed that we're going to move through as we look at these verses today. Firstly, Paul shows us in his words that there is no partiality in the kingdom of God. There must be no partiality or favoritism given to any individual in the church of Jesus Christ. There must be no partiality or favoritism within our fellowship we are one together in Christ. The same blood that bought me, bought you. 
and it flowed from Emmanuel's veins. The same price that was paid for me was paid for you. And there must never be any type of partiality or favoritism shown to any one individual. We are his body. And Paul demonstrates this indirectly in the words that he speaks. We're going to see that as we move through this. Then secondly, he outlines that tests and trials are an inevitable part of life. It's not easy to go through a test, a trial, or a temptation. But we shouldn't be surprised by them. They're a means of conforming us to the image of Christ. And God uses them. God allows them. And our lives go through them. And there are many great things that we can extract from the most negative of circumstances if we understand that they have a way of perfecting us and bringing us into the fullness of Christ's life. We'll see that. Then thirdly, we also see that in these words of commendation that Paul gives to brothers and sisters in Christ, that he calls them to hold the place where they have been positioned. Now, all of these messages are spoken indirectly, but we will see this as we look and examine these verses this morning. So, let's start out in verse 8. Paul starts by greeting two men. Ampliatus and Urbanus. And these men were more than likely just common slaves in a city that was filled with tens of thousands of slaves. In an empire, a Roman empire, that was filled with millions of slaves. Ampliatus and Urbanus were just common slaves. And we can assume this because of their names. Ampliatus and Abanus were just common everyday slave names, slave names of the lowest rank and file in the Roman Empire. Names in the Roman civilization were all important because your name identified who you were socially. It ranked you. It gave you prominence. It gave you influence. Your name either credited you with respect or discredited you when it was voiced abroad. So Ampliatus and Abanus, being slaves, were among the lowest of the low in the social structure of Rome. And their names, let everybody know that. Their names simply advertised the fact that they had no social standing in the city in which they lived. But what's so wonderful about Paul's words is that whilst Ampliatus and Abanus were ranked at the bottom of Rome's social structure... They were not classified by Paul in that manner. Because Paul understood that there was no partiality 
in the kingdom of God. There was no social structure or ranking system in the body of Christ. All were one, all were equal, because the same price had been paid for all. Not purchased with silver and gold, Peter says, but purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, every single person. With such a high price paid for them. An inestimable amount paid for your life, for my life. There can be no partiality. There can be no divide. There can be no social ranking in the kingdom of God or in the church of Jesus Christ. His blood has paid for you. His blood has paid for me. How can one ever be above another? We're all one in him. We are all the objects of such unconditional, unconditional love. It's wonderful to see it. And Paul understood this. And because Paul understood that there was no partiality in the kingdom of God, he used the most affectionate language when honoring these brothers. He called them beloved and fellow workers. And in Paul's day, that kind of language was unthinkable. To call a slave your, your beloved, to call a slave who was, the, who was at the bottom of the pile in the social structure of Rome, your fellow worker was unthinkable. But Paul knew that Jesus didn't show any partiality to anyone. And therefore, he wasn't going to show any partiality either. This type of expressed affection was shocking and unthinkable. But Paul held these brothers who had no status or no influence to the world around them. He held these brothers in high esteem. And added to this, Paul called the entire church at Rome to greet and embrace them. So not only was Paul commending them, he was calling all the body of believers in Rome, both high and low, to greet these two slaves, Ampliatus and Urbanus. Greet them. He commends them. These brothers that the Roman civilization had deemed as rejects and the lowest of the low, Paul commends and encourages all at Rome to embrace them and to greet them. What was he doing? He was sending out a widespread message that Jesus' love is unconditional, impartial, and accessible to anyone and everyone. And in this spirit, Paul was enacting the new command that Jesus had given in that upper room at the Last Supper. John chapter 13, 
Verse 34 through to verse 35 says this, Jesus speaking, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul wasn't getting his template from the culture and the world around him. Paul was getting his template from the new command that Jesus had given to his disciples in that upper room before he sacrificed his life on the cross. And that's why the church grew so rapidly and powerfully. It wasn't because of methodology. It wasn't because of anything outside of this unconditional love flowing through believers' hearts one towards another. And this is important for us to see. It's important for us to remember always as followers of Jesus. All of us have different backgrounds, different occupations, different ages, different ethnicity. But we are one together in Christ, one in Him. And His love within us is far greater than anything that would differentiate us. After greeting Ampliatus and Urbanus, Paul greets Stachys, who was believed to be a Greek and from his name, he could have been well-educated. So, here we see the high standing, standing shoulder to shoulder with those who were but common and of low rank. All were one together in the church, all holding the same value and a place of honor. So, those who are highly educated and who are influential in their world were brought as one together with those who were of low rank and had no influence. Each were valued, each were respected, neither were despised, but brought together. If you've got a great education, if you've got a, a, a prosperous vocation, you're not going to be despised and you're not going to be you know, your, 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 your success is not going to be rained down on. It's going to be celebrated and given thanks for. But equally, if you have a low position in life, you're not going to be despised. Everything's brought together in Jesus and held together in Him. The educated, the uneducated, the slave, the free. The bond, the influential, the citizen, it mattered not to Paul. If you were in Christ, you were one in him. There was no partiality, and there is to be no partiality in the church of Christ. Next, Paul commends another brother, a man called Apelles. And here we see how Tests are inevitable in life. Another area now Paul is dealing with. He's looked, and we've seen, 
how this kingdom that we're in, there's to be no partiality shown to any one individual, but we're all one in Christ. And now, indirectly, he starts to talk about tests and trials and how they are inevitable in life by commending this man called Apelles. Every test, every trial that we go through, and there are many, they're not designed to destroy us. They're there to develop us. They're there to define those wonderful aspects of Christ's life in us. You could be going through a horrendous test today. You could be going through a trial that's lasted days, weeks, even months. But at the end of it, you will come out richer. You will come out stronger. You will come out, yes, having lost what you don't need, but you will come out having gained what you, what you have in Christ, you'll come out the richer for it, irrespective of what it might be. Paul points out that Apelles was a man who had been tested and approved in Christ. What a great commendation to have over your life. What a great commendation to have attributed to your life. That's something we'd want over all of our names, isn't it? To be tested and approved in Christ Jesus. And that inscription and that commendation, I'm sure, that Paul gave was not given lightly. Apelles was a man that had endured tests. Apelles was a man that endured trials of many kinds and had undergone various temptations, but all of those difficulties, all of those crises, all of those circumstances that were stacked up against this man served but to approve the life of Christ within him. Every test, every trial, every temptation, the positive outcome of it, if we will trust God in it, is that it will approve your life. It will approve it. It will not destroy it. It will but develop it. It will but define it. And you will come out more Christ-like, stronger through the darkest night. Hallelujah. It's wonderful how God can do this. It really is. It's wonderful how he can use the darkest situations in our lives, the most dire circumstances, the sudden surprises of life that we would never want. God can use, hallelujah, and does use repeatedly to refine us, develop, develop us, and make us more like Christ-like. Check out Joseph. Hallelujah. Before the greatest promotion in his life, he spent two years in prison. God's ways are not our ways. Hallelujah. We would think if we've got to get to the palace and achieve everything that we've seen in the dream that God has given us 13 years before, we think we've got to hand out our cards and, you know, show how diligent we are before 
the powers that be. God's ways are completely different. Right, Joseph? You're about to enter into another stage, into another phase of your life where you are going to be the second in command over the greatest empire of the then known world. Time for a bit of prison time. Two years. And the psalm says, in prison he started to cry. Well, you would, wouldn't you? His feet were in stocks and his hands were chained up and he started to cry. <laughs> Woohoo! God is good. God is good. He's faithful. It doesn't mean to say that the trials are easy. It doesn't mean to say that a few tears won't roll down your face. But I'm telling you now, outside of the trial, at the end of it, you'll come out all the richer. You really will. And only God can do that. Apelles was a man that was approved. Approved in Christ. He stood through the many various pressures that occur that often come to test our faith and our characters. Do you know when I was thinking about Apelles, a man who was approved in Christ Jesus, my mind went back to when I was an apprentice. I remember having to study metallurgy, which is the study of metals. And in these lectures, that I went to on metallurgy. We used to study the, the grain structures of various materials. We examined their strengths and their weaknesses through various tests that we'd put the materials through. Each test was different. And it would highlight different aspects of the character qualities in the steels that were undergoing examination. For instance, if we were looking at how tenacious a steel was, we would test the tensile strength of the steel by exposing it to extreme loads. Sometimes when we go through trials, it can feel as if you're under an extreme load. It could be just a suggestion that God is testing and developing your tenacity of character. When we tested for tensile strength, we would be testing the metal's load-bearing capacity. That's what was being measured as opposing forces were trying to pull it apart. We also tested materials for ductility. And ductility in a steel means that a steel can be flexible or movable and pliable. Ductility is the opposite to brittleness. Some steels are brittle. And when they're impacted by a force, they just shatter or cracks go right throughout the material. But a steel that is ductile has workable strength, sculptural strength. It can be shaped. Other tests look for malleability in steel, malleable qualities. And if a steel was malleable, it could be hammered. Have you ever felt <laughs> in the tests of life that you're being hammered? 
circumstance comes down on you like a hammer. When a steel is malleable, it can be hammered or beaten into a different shape without returning to its old form. Malleability means that a material can be conformed into a new shape without breaking. It means that a steel is transformational, that it can take on a brand new form. And also we tested for toughness, toughness in a steel. It's the material's ability to resist indentation when struck by an outside force. If a steel is tough, it means that its surface can remain unmarked, unscored, and undamaged. And I think that when Paul was commending Apelles for being tested and approved in Christ, he was talking about his tenacious nature. He was talking about his flexibility to move and to change with circumstance, to allow the trials to shape him and mold him. And like strength is examined in steel, Apelles' life came under examination as a result of all of the various circumstances that he went through. And Paul said he was approved in Christ Jesus. So our lives need to be tenacious. They need to be ductile. They need to be malleable. They need to be tough. All of these aspects are developed and defined as we go through life's circumstances. Just like this man. Trials, tests, and temptations of every kind Form us and shape us to be more like Christ. They transform us. When you go through a difficult time, you're not coming out the same way. You're going to come out changed to be more like Christ. That's why James, the apostle, got so excited when he fell into trials of every kind. James chapter 1, verse 2 to verse 4, words I'm sure that you have read. He says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James faced huge tests and trials in his life like all of the other believers about him, his message was to get excited when the challenges were fierce. His message was to get excited and to be full of joy when you fall headlong into various trials, tests, and temptations because at the end of it all, after you've endured it, you will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You come out richer, friends. doesn't matter how hard it might be. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. As a believer in Christ Jesus, when you go through trials, tests, or temptations, you come out richer. Amen. 
you come out more invested in in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. A palace was approved in Christ. And that's the example that said that's what each one of us want to go after in the difficult days in which we live and in the difficult days sometimes which are ahead. This is just going to approve me. This is just going to approve the supernatural life that I have in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Next, Paul goes on to say, greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. And here now, indirectly, another message is being communicated. Indirectly, the area of no partiality in the kingdom of God has been covered. Then secondly, Paul, as he commends a palace, covers the area of tests and temptations and trials being an, being an inevitable part of life. Now, as he greets those who are in the household of Aristobulus, he's focusing on another area indirectly, the area of hold your position. Hold your position in life. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in your workplace. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in your vocational life. Hold your ground. For Christ, shine as a light. When things get dark in work, it is not time to scour the internet and look for another job. It's time to hold your ground and shine your light where you are. Because you've been placed and positioned in Christ where you are. Now, that's not to say that you can't go and look for other jobs at all. But there are times, there are times, and you will know it in your spirit, right? You will know it where you've just got to root down and not go anywhere when the winds come strong and the storm is hard. It's time to hold your ground and stay placed where Jesus has placed you to be a light and a message to those who are about you. He's covering this now in the remaining words that he speaks to those that he loves. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Now, what's interesting to note here is that Paul doesn't say, greet Aristobulus. He says, greet his household, those who are in Aristobulus's household, those are the ones that Paul wants to commend, not Aristobulus. The ones in Aristobulus's household were probably slaves and servants. And Aristobulus is just probably the unconverted, unsaved head of the house. And it's widely believed by Bible commenters historians that this same Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. And if you remember, Herod the Great was the one who ordered the massacre of all of the baby boys in Jesus' day 
in an all-out attempt to murder Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. And that's why Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt for two years until Herod the Great died. That's when they could return. But this man, Aristobulus, is believed to have been the grandson of Herod the Great. And Paul commends those who are in the household serving Christ, being a light in the household of Aristobulus. And the point is this, really simple. Whilst conditions would have been very dark in that household and even anti-Christ in every way, there's believers there serving Jesus, being a light, holding their position, holding their ground, and Paul commends them. He commends them for holding their position where Jesus had placed them in their place of work. Things would have been difficult. Things would have been dark. But they didn't run away because Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. They didn't leave his house. They just rooted down, anchored in, and shone in their lives for Christ. It's a great message to us. It's a great message that our life in Christ Jesus through the Spirit of God wants to permeate all areas and every aspect of society. Hallelujah. And it does. You'd be amazed, and I don't think we'll ever realize, realize how the aroma through your life very often we're unaware of it, but how the aroma through your life is diffused wherever you go, in that office, in that factory, wherever you are in the supermarket, out in life, there's an aroma, a spiritual aroma of life of Christ that is diffused through your face, hallelujah, through your words, through your interactions with people. It's diffused through you. And that's the message here. It was being diffused in this very household. And then Paul goes on. He continues by greeting Herodian, another man of influence in the Herodian dynasty. So Jesus, the gospel, was touching all levels of society tell you, it gives you great hope when you read the Word of God to see what the Spirit of God can do. And I tell you, God has not given up on this land. He really hasn't. His church, His church is still here in the United Kingdom. Hallelujah. He hasn't finished yet. Then he calls everyone, this is where we're coming to a close really today. He calls everyone to greet another household, the household of Narcissus. Again, Paul does not commend Narcissus, but his household. And that's important to note because Narcissus, again, just like Aristobulus, probably hadn't received Jesus. And Narcissus... History records about him 
that he served Claudius Caesar and became wealthy through his bribes. If you wanted to, to have an appointment with Claudius Caesar, you had to go through Narcissus. And you had to cross his palm with silver, a lot of it. That's how he came to position, came to power. He was a corrupt man, a corrupt individual. And yet, there was a household of believers in Narcissus' house that were serving Christ, holding their position, and being a light in the darkest place. As Nero came to power, Narcissus was murdered by Nero. But these believers held their ground. They were influential where they were. They quietly served their Lord and their Savior, Jesus. So the picture that emerges here is, is, is incredible. As Paul greets these two households of Aristobulus and Narcissus, he's greeting those who are holding position in the darkness, being a light where they are, not despising their placement, doing all things without complaint as unto the Lord. That's the way to live, friends. Not to pull your boss down. Paul didn't say, well, we've heard from Aristobulus's household and we've, ho we've heard all of the complaints of the household. Aristobulus is doing this. Aristobulus is doing that. Ar Aristobulus, I mean, he's, a, he's the most ungodliest of men. Onesissus, reports have come in from that household. No, Paul knew that it, they were in a vile environment. Despicable. These house owners could, at the click of their fingers, murder a slave openly and there would be no law to counteract their actions. That's how debased Rome was. I mean, if you went through, I mean, it would be embarrassing here this morning to talk about how despicable and how wicked and how dark the city of Rome was. It would be embarrassing. And, and, and people complain about what's happening today in our world. I'm telling you now, you live in Rome and be a believer. You be, you be a believer in Rome and serve Jesus. No, they weren't complaining about their, about their boss, Aristobulus or Narcissus. They were living exemplary lives to the point that Paul commended them in his letter and wanted it noted. It's encouraging, it really is, to go to a higher level in our lives. And not only were there believers in Aristobulus's house and Narcissus's house, there were even believers, listen, in Caesar's household. Amen. Oh, it's incredible. I just love it. It's incredible. In Caesar's household, by the time 
that Paul was writing his letter to the Romans, Nero was in power. And if you know anything about Nero, I mean, he was the most barbaric, one of the most barbaric Caesars that had lived. He was an awful, wicked man. He fed Christians to the lions in the great Roman arenas. That's how they got their entertainment. That was sport for them, taking believers. I mean, this historical record that, that shows us that even, that even uh, husbands and wives, children were taken. And if they wouldn't deny Christ, they would just be fed to wild animals. And you know what? Such was the Spirit of God, even in the children, that they would not deny the Lord, their Savior, Jesus. They wouldn't deny Him. And they would just be fed and flung as entertainment to wild animals. And you're not talking, you know, just a handful. You're talking thousands. You have the catacombs in, the catacombs in Rome that is a living testimony and evidence of that martyrs in the church of Rome so captivated by Christ and the wonderful work that he had done in their lives that they were unrelenting in their spirit come what may and many of them by their thousands gave their lives as martyrs for Jesus actually counting it as an honor counting it as an honor to serve him and in this, this place of darkness, Caesar's household, there were believers. And we know that because we read about it in Paul's letter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. You can read it when you go home. And it's just one little line. And as Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he remembers that the household of Caesar wants to send a greeting to their brothers and sisters at Philippi. Isn't that wonderful? They're not, they're not looking for freedom from Nero. Nero would light his gardens at night with Christians. He would use human torches to light his garden as he would walk around with his parties. And Christians would be burning torches for his garden to be lit. And these believers in Caesar's household were not looking to leave where they were and relocate. No, they were sending a greeting through Paul to their brothers and sisters in Philippi. I tell you, it's a different way to live. It's a different spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that just stays planted and positioned where you're placed to be a light for him in and around every, every circumstance. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. In what we've looked at today, we've looked at three simple areas, really. 
a lot of facts, a lot of details about these individuals, men and women who laid down their lives for Christ in their time. It's good to look at it. It's good to see it as it is because it encourages us, doesn't it, in our desire to lay our lives down for Jesus. We've looked this morning, seen that there is no partiality in the kingdom of God. There's no partiality. There's to be no partiality in the church, in our fellowship with one another. One is not above another. And the moment any church slips into that, the Spirit of God will walk right out the door. He will. It doesn't matter how small or how big. If, there's, if there is partiality, if there is preference given, and that spirit creeps in to any church family, the Spirit of God will walk right out of the door, or he'll bring correction. There is no partiality. And I thank God, you know, no partiality here. And we don't ever want there to be. And we always, and it's easy to slip into. It's always a danger, but I tell you, we always want to say, come as you are. You won't stay as you are, because Jesus does the changing, but come as you are. Whosoever will, come and receive. Then we've looked at how tests are inevitable. Trials, tests, temptations of every kind. They're an inevitable part of life. And also we've seen how it's important to hold our position where we've been placed in Christ. When things are difficult, when things are dark, that's not the time to run to Google and type in where to find another place of work. No, pray first. If God wants to move you on, he will. There are times and seasons when that happens, when you've done all you can do. But there are times where running is not an option. You've just got to root in, anchor down, and be a light for Christ in your world where he has placed you. Listen, if you feel on the fringe today in this place, this is a family brothers and sisters around you. You're part of this family. You're a center part of this family. Or you could be going through trials, temptations, challenging times. It's never going to be easy, but ask the Lord for joy in it. Ask the Lord to show you how this very trial, this very circumstance is perfecting, completing you so that you lack nothing. Or it could be that you need to give thanks for where you've been placed. Just thank Him. Thank Him for your employer. Thank Him for the associates around you, those work colleagues. Thank God and do it without complaint. Amen. Father, I thank you for your people this morning. Lord, I thank you for the instruction of your word that we have heard. 
And I'm sure, Lord, there's areas in all of our lives that we can be enriched by this morning from hearing your word. I pray for every person under the sound of my voice today. And Lord, whatever area of need they have today, I thank you that your word gives us life. Your word brings instruction, direction, and correction. It brings hope, and it works powerfully within us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we've listened to your word, as we've examined it, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would go forth with strength and a new resolve, a continued resolve to lay our lives down for the cause of your church, whether that's in prayer for other believers, whether it's in fellowship, whether it's phoning somebody up and just encouraging them to continue on in you, whether it's practically serving here week by week, whatever it might be, Lord, we want to make our lives count for you and for the cause of your kingdom in our time and in our generation. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to sing before we go. Thank you so much this morning for just receiving that word. God bless you. Have a great week.